0: Welcome to a new episode of the Hands-On Business Podcast, a place for you to come for tips and advice on growing your business. Now, I'm delighted to say I'm going to be talking to someone who I respect immensely and who I've known for longer than I care to remember. It's certainly over 15 years, but I can't quite remember. Yeah, it's exactly way more than that. Uh, is it long, Yeah, I yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. today I welcome Ian Chamberlain to the show. Welcome, Ian.
1: Hi, came. Great to see you again.
0: Yeah, indeed. Um, Ian is very, very famous in the healthcare business and healthcare circles for helping people to gain more effective access to their customers. I think everybody that I know and everybody in the healthcare space will know Ian. But in reality, what he does is he gets people talking and listening in healthcare. And I'm going to let Ian talk to you a bit more about that in a minute. So as I said, I've known Ian for... Probably twenty odd years, and I think I first met Ian, if I'm not mistaken, at some I think it was a leadership meeting or whatever. Ian was presenting around access and communication. If I'm not mistaken, I can't, I can't quite remember where. I we can't met.
1: remember. Don't rely on me to
0: remember that. Hacking. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but it, was a, it was a long time. But 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 today. It, it, Ian's not going really specific to specifically be talking about that, or he'll be touching on that, but really the topic that we're going to be talking about today is something that lots of pharmaceutical people, and actually lots of people in general, with an expertise are often interested. So what we're going to be looking at today is how to become an expert for hire. You know, how do you take something that you're interested in or an expertise you've got, a skill set you've got, and then turn that actually into a viable business? So um, I'm going to hand over to Ian at this point, just to tell us a bit more about yourself, Uh, you know, what your experience is and how you come to what you're doing today.
1: Well, thank you very much for your introduction. Yeah, so I've been in and around the life science space for about 30 years, joined the pharmaceutical industry as a young sales rep after a brief dabble with the supermarket industry. And I worked in pharma sales, pharma sales training, and uh, for about nine years in the industry, employed. And then I, I became quite a good medical rep. But my thing that I was really interested in was customer access, was accessing customers. And I'd been coaching and training others as a regional coach. And then I covered a national trainer's job. So I got involved in training and coaching others. But my own personal interest was I was, A, I was pretty good at it. I was quite good at gaining access to all of the the GPs of Birmingham and the secondary care doctors. And back then it was PCGs. There's one for the teenagers, a three-letter acronym for the youngsters watching this hacking. PCGs, all of the, there was 26, I think they were at the time in my territory as a young sales rep. And I could see all of the all of the key people there. So I was quite good at gaining access to people. And then I was coaching others. And my company were really interested in making sure that people were um, able to see people. There was a constant drive for seeing more people, seeing the right people, uh, making sure we were having Proper customer facing time, higher up the decision-making food chain. And when I got a brief uh, opportunity as national sales manager covering a maternity leave, and then the maternity leave trainer in question didn't return and I was asked to stay on. Um, I, I was sort of given the remit as training manager to have a look to put together a training plan for the coming year. And I did so. And I'd included a good chunk based on what everybody was telling me that they wanted to, to learn about my own passion, which was gaining access to customers. I was really convinced I could train the staff to do that markedly better, that would have a significant impact on business. And all of the business managers, the first line sales managers in the field force of about 80 people were saying, this is what we need more of. This is the this is the sticking point. This is the high leverage training intervention. And I kind of took it to the to the bosses with my proposed plan for the year. And they said, yeah, it's good, but... And then gave me a good bunch of reasons why that wasn't going to be something they were going to be spending too much time on. They'd never really spent much time on it. They did selling skills courses, product training, anatomy, physiology, ABPI code training. That was going to be my inbox, my, my workload for the coming year and for the foreseeable future. And it was kind of at that point that I thought, do you know what everybody tells me they're interested in it? Okay, they don't want to do it the way I suggested here. Maybe if I was freelancing this, I might have a, a business because I'm really passionate about it. And because I'd spent some time thinking about it, I had a solution that I was really pretty confident in. So that's when I that's when I went freelance. And I've been doing that ever since. So the last 20 years, when we met, I've been working with all different types of life science companies, more than 180 different life science companies in 70 countries around the world, helping their customer-facing teams get better access to customers. So selling into new markets, selling into uh, referrer networks, selling up the decision-making food chain to strategic and financial decision makers, as well as classical key opinion leaders clinically. Um, And I've gone from delivering that training, I'm going to talk about it today, I suspect, into delivering that training personally to having an online presence having a subscription model website to having some software that supports that and still run a fairly lean um, work from home fairly lean business I I work just four days a week I take 10 or 12 weeks holiday a year I have a nice work-life balance as an expert for hire um, doing the thing that I love most and I'm really passionate about it and over the last 20 years I've Unofficially, I don't certainly don't do this professionally, kind of mentored a number of other people from Pharma and MedTech who've been, you know, vice president of whatever it might be in Pharma or National Sales Manager here or brand director there. And they've had something to say. They've had a they've had a, a piece of music that's playing within them and they wanna they want to get it out there. And I've spent a fair amount of time just as, as a casual friend in many cases helping them establish small expert for higher businesses and interested to help some of, your, some of your viewers and listeners hacking.
0: Thank you very much, Ian. That's a really good intro. So, so that sounds like the nirvana, doesn't it? Because that's what everybody's looking for. I'm going to take a, something that I know. I want to turn it into a business. I'm going to work four days a week, a lot of it from home, 10 to 12 uh, <laughs> weeks of holiday year. But I'm I'm assuming, and you may tell me differently, that when you first started, it wasn't that. So just just talk me through the steps, because people always think they're going to come out of uh, a business with an expertise, and then all of a sudden be working four days a week, making decent money, and taking 10 to 12 weeks of holiday (laughs) a year.
1: Yeah, I mean, like many things in life, the power of compound interest is is, is important here. So if you, I mean, I is, you know, if you want to have a nice garden, you can't just kind of have one crazy blitz once a year. You've got to be constantly, sufficiently, routinely, regularly tending that garden. A great, a great relationship with, you, with your spouse, you need, know, it's not just one giant romantic gesture of Valentine's Day. It's about regular, consistent attention. And, and the great payoffs in life typically are compounded over a length of time. And working for yourself, it's exactly that. There's a, I always kind of, what I try and do every year is get a little bit, I maybe have 5% more, more people that know me, maybe try and develop five, you know, an extra 5% more solutions, add to the solutions that I'm working on. I try and upsell and cross sell the people that currently work, that, that buy from me, that buy my training from me. I try and find another 5% more. And those, when you start out, those little increases, when you start out, you might be, you might be doubling your business in the first couple of years. Um, but when you start out, those small increments seem meaningless, but added up, anyone who's done a GCSE or O-level in our day, Hakeem, but GCSE maths, anyone who's done GCSE maths will recognise the power of compound interest. And over time, you get to build a really big, relatively speaking, for somebody working out of a spare bedroom, a decent-sized a decent sized business with great people. And you're in that luxurious position to be able to decline work and to be able to take those 12 weeks holiday. Um I'll mean, i take you through some of those early steps, if you like, that I found useful. Some of these steps are um, things that I didn't do, but I wish I had, or that I I didn't do early, but that I eventually came round to doing. And I think that the first and most important piece of decision making as you go self-employed, after you've made sure that you've taken care of the emergency bills for the and it's probably worth saying that none of this is financial advice. This is just my personal story, right? And uh, once you've taken care of those emergency bills for the foreseeable future, because one of the things you'll notice is that the buying cycles are quite long, is even if somebody goes, I love what you're selling, Hakim. I think we need it in my organization. If you're selling to a large corporation, nobody sat on their hands waiting for Ian and Hakim to turn up. They're kind of solving their problems right now. They might like what you've got, but budgets have been allocated. They were probably allocated quite a while ago. So it might be, even if all things go well, it might be two or three months before you get your first paid gig. And then with some of my pharma clients, and I sell almost exclusively to pharma and medtech, the payment terms are 90 days after the end of the month you did the work. So if you did the work in the first week of... January, it might be 90 days after the end of January, February, March, April, beginning of April before you get paid. So make sure you've got your money put aside. And then the most important element of what you're going to do for somebody when you're deciding to go self employed is what's your niche? What's your niche going to be? What is it that you're going to be known for? What is it that you're going to dedicate your career? To the problems you're going to be solving, the positioning that you're going to have, the audience that you're going to be working with, the ways and methods and and tools and solutions that you bring. What's that niche going to be? Are you clear on it? Can you articulate it? Is there a market for it? Um, And working on that is probably your first step. And then bit by bit by bit through all of those different, depending on the network you currently have, the network you're trying to break into, that's where the business comes from.
0: Oh, that's really useful, that answer. So in other words, just to say, so you're saying small but consistent steps. So even you've been going for a long time, but even years saying that you have uh, targets in terms of the 5%, the 5%, where well, that's customers. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know, beat know.
1: myself up. I don't give myself a good dressing down if I miss my <laughs> KPI. But I'm kind of, I'm aware that... Um, you know inflation is you know we've all seen the inflation figures inflation is currently chipping away so even if you're you're constantly going into a headwind anyway the purchasing yeah. power of the pound or euro or dollar that you're earning is being eroded so i mean with inflation running at six percent you've got to be going well, yeah that's just that's the, that's the cpi if you look at the old rpi measure if you look at Middle class, middle-aged men's inflation, our inflation is way above that, the sort of stuff that we find ourselves buying. Um, you need to be running a little, you know, you need to be running pretty fast just to stand still. But it's also part of that that compound interest. It pays off that it does pay off over time for sure.
0: Excellent. And and then so, so that the first thing you said was about the, the consistency. The second thing was about almost setting your business up in a realistic manner so you know what's going to happen, because exactly as you just said. I remember uh, you know, back in 2010 when I got my first paid client from Ham's Associates, the biggest thing that I had in my mind what I wanted my payment terms to be, and then you go into Big Pharma and they're saying, not really bothered what you think your payment terms no. are. These are our payment terms. And I, I remember the first, I was arguing, oh, no, no. But, and they were like, you can take it or you can leave it, but that's the payment yeah, term."
1: That is the payment terms, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, the people that I tend to deal with you know, are jolly nice about it. They'll go, you know, apologies, Ian, we know you're the small guy. And we're this massive multi-billion pound pharma company, but it is what it is. Yeah. Okay for you. And yeah. So yeah, it does take a little bit of getting used to, but you know, once you started, then obviously the months that you, you you did that work four months ago and bing, a nice check comes into your bank balance. So, you know, once you've started, it's okay. But those first six months are probably the first 12 months. Realistically, I, in my first year of being freelance, I earned half my farmer salary and yeah. I wasn't a big I wasn't a, I was by no means a big hitter in pharma and I earned half of that in the first year so if you are you know if you kind of spend every penny you earn and you have no buffer to to, to live off you're gonna you're gonna find it a little bit tough um, to potentially halve or even worse I don't I'm not sure if I was a particularly good or bad case study but be prepared to find the first three months penniless and the first That's year a significant cut in pay.
0: Yeah, no, certainly. I mean, my, my my watch watch words were always: it's firstly it as well. Have, have, can I have a buffer of a month to start off with? Then a buffer of three months. Then a buffer of six months. Then a buffer of a year, and then then you sort of like start feeling a bit more comfortable. That oh, okay? So if anything happens, and I, I yeah. know at least worst case scenario, I can go and get a job.
1: I mean, some of this is for your mental, and that's a really great point. If it doesn't work out, you can always go back to whatever you were doing, or you can take a part-time iteration of whatever you were doing. There's always other options that you can have. But a lot of that sort of sensible financial planning is is practical, but also it's your emotional health. We all see, you know, the sons and daughters of millionaires and billionaires can often become quite successful entrepreneurs. Well, you know, there's a practical element. Maybe mom or dad helped them with a loan, but there's also that huge burden of responsibility that they're not going to starve they don't have to worry about putting food on the table for their family for example so they can take those high risk high reward entrepreneurial bets and if you take 10 of those yeah you might fail nine times but one of them might pay off substantially most of us can't afford to fail nine times
0: yeah so you need to be a little bit more cautious perhaps and and then the, the last one you mentioned was about the niching. Hmm. We talked a bit about that off air. Just talk a bit about that because a lot of people, and I've and I've done the same thing, if that you your eyes are widened because there's so much business out there, and you think, oh, I could do this and it'd be really useful in that. Why do you think niching is so important as opposed to being general?
1: Yeah, I mean, niching is important because the way you find your customers is um digitalized largely nowadays. It is about it isn't, you're not going to just find your customers. In the days of pre-digital, your customers were you would you would have a, an office on the high street and it would be it would be footfall that went past. And the more services you could offer that office, if you were in at you were in an, you were an accountancy firm or a wealth management firm or whatever it might be, if you were on the on the high street offering your accountancy and financial advice, you, your traffic would be the people that goes past and the yellow pages for your local area now in the world of consultancy and expertise for hire as we're calling this it's it's a, it's a wide pool that you're fishing in and what you're trying to do is you're trying to give somebody real clarity first it's really hard to be an expert on a load of stuff it's really hard to be an expert to be properly an expert on something demands considerable amount of work on your behalf to get good at what you're doing by the way compound interest works there so if you get better at what you do 5% a year, you might not be the world's greatest expert now. But dedicate 20 years of your life getting five or 10% better at that niche. If you've picked a niche, by then in 15, 20 years time, you will be the best there is and everybody will know you for that niche. So it becomes that if my boiler breaks down, I'm not looking for you know, a boiler rep- a boiler repairs on Google, I'm looking for valent boiler repairs, you know, I'm going to make this up now, a Mark 749 boiler valence specialist in East Sussex. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be looking for a niche within a niche. And then if I've got someone who's a, you know, a general boiler repair person or someone who does my boilers is local, best prices, whatever it might be on you know, their niche is also great prices or whatever it might be. I'm going to go for that person I'm certainly going to sound that person out I may then eliminate them but I'm if when I've met them but having the niche is important and I help quite a lot of people define their niche because in many cases people aren't sure how to work that out they come with unlike me I was relatively fortunate in that I had my niche but I was still seduced by thinking I needed to also do selling skills, negotiation skills, coaching skills, presentation mm. skills. I did all of that in those first few years as well. I had bills to pay, so I couldn't, it's hard to say no. if Somebody said, could you do a couple of days on selling skills, Ian? Yeah, I can do it. And secondly, I'm kind of, kind of an amenable sort of person who likes to make the other my customer feel good. Um, and so it took a while for me to define my niche, but... Uh, even though I had one, but helping others pinpoint their niche is something I spend quite a bit of time doing. From
0: thank you so much. So let's just go down that rabbit hole slightly. So, how mm. do you recommend someone find the niche? How how do you help people find the niche? Because as you said, it's very people come out of pharma or any business actually with lots of things that they think they're good at. So, how do you hone that down and say, well, actually, this is how you would find your niche?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's there's a number of different ways you can do this Uh, the way that I do it. And the way that I've helped other people do this remotely rather than spend lots of hours with somebody is I'm going to do it with you. Now (laughs) is on the, on the top of one piece of paper, I work, I write the word results. I'm going to stick that on my fridge. Another piece of paper, the word respect. And on the third piece of paper, these are my three R's the word Research. So it's results, respect, research. You stick those up, and you give yourself a month. You give yourself. This is before you've told your boss where to go and handed your notice in, right? You give yourself a month, and on each of those bits of paper, you write down, respectively, where you personally have had some strong results. Where have you had some good results? Or what do I mean by strong? I mean what you do in that world at that skill in that area of expertise in that competency you're better than eighty percent of the rest of the world you'd be in the top twenty percent on that particular so all those things where you've had some good results. and don't limit yourself to work at this stage. be pretty creative you know, if you make a great if you make a great chicken biryani, whatever it is, put it up on the list there you know if you're if you're really good at You know, you know, playing with kids. Kids love playing with you at parties. Whatever, put it up there. You're, you're, you know, you're, whatever it is. Put up the stuff that you're, you're pretty good at. You have an actual affinity with. Second one is respect. Notice over the next month or so, the times when people ask your advice on something, your opinion on something. They use you as a sounding board. They touch in with that. Could be on social media. That could be in person. What do people come and get your take on? It happens more than you think. It's, often we don't notice it, so you kind of have your antennae out for that. What do people, you know, or people are just saying you're really good at this, I, or someone said, you know what? You're what you will tell you what, you've really got your handle on that. Where do people respect what you do and ask you for advice? It happens more than you think, and it happens in lots of different fields. At the moment don't try and edit just stick them on your piece of paper and the third and final one and it's the most important of the three is research notice again what you like to research if you go to the library what books are you drawn to if you get when you get the sunday papers with all those supplements in them which ones do you always turn to and read which ones are the most interesting to you look at your own library look at your own bookshelf Uh, What blogs, podcasts do you subscribe to and listen to? Um, It's far and away the most important element of this this process is what do you most enjoy researching? And fill those, and I'll explain why in a second, why research is the most important. Fill those three sheets up over, over a month, two, three months even. Take a bit of time on this. And even if you decide to rip it up and don't go self-employed, it's an interesting little exercise to run through for your own career development within within an organisation as well. And then see if there's any or more than one trait or area that appears on all three sheets, all three bits of paper. Can you maybe combine a couple, you know, you're a uh, yoga for rock climbers becomes your thing, whatever it might be. Can you combine a couple of those elements into a into a really exciting, that gets you excited, you feel the goosebumps niche that comes your way. Um, you still need to then go on and explore the viability from a market perspective of, of finding the customers and so on, and then developing solutions to solve those customers' problems. But that's that three-sheet exercise is my go-to process, and I did it myself, and I've done it with a number of other people
0: over the years. Very interesting. So results, respect, and research—certainly more mm. interesting than the uh, three R's that we used to have to do at school. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so, and you just said there that you were going to just elaborate on why you thought the research was yeah, the most sorry. important
1: part. Yeah, I do. I, I really do think research is the most important part. It's um, it, if I was going to, you know, if I was going to, would you hire somebody um, for in? You, you were going to make a you're going to make some real estate investment. You want to buy some buy to let properties. Would you hire somebody who's never done, it, never bought a house themselves? No, probably not. Probably not. But if that person had spent the last five years interviewing, like you interview experts on all sorts of topics, had spent the last five years, and they had a really curious mind. They were brilliant at what they did. they got the experts talking, they asked brilliant questions. If that person had spent the last five years interviewing, maybe being mentored by researching in detail you know th- the top 50 real estate investors in the United Kingdom or globally whatever it might be, and have picked their brains and coalesced that into a into a pack, might you then be more minded to maybe buy that person's ebook, subscribe to that person's podcast, Maybe be a subscribe paid subscription to that person's membership website. Maybe even attend one of their events if they were speaking in a town near you. Maybe now you would. Yeah. Maybe now you would. So that res- yeah, you need. It's better if you've done it yourself and you've got that respect and the results. Yeah, that's better. But a real passion for proper research. Again, cumulatively over a number of years. If if somebody's read the five or ten. Seminal pieces of work, literature, books on a particular topic, and summarized them and looked at what in a kind of a Venn diagram of what are the 10 elements of, you know, starting a business, investing in cryptocurrency, communication skills, selling skills. You know, if they've read the best books on that topic and they've researched it, they're probably someone who can help, even if they've not done much themselves yet. So I really think that's the one to. That's the one to dive into. It's probably where your passion is, as well, because passion's what gets you, keeps you going when the going gets tough. Um, but yeah, all three are important. But I think that if if it doesn't, if you're not going to be researching a topic, because what's current right now will be obsolete in that field probably in five years' time. If you're not going to be at the leading edge and peering over the horizon. Um, you're not gonna you're not gonna have a business, and people won't want to network with you. In terms of networking, people are often interested in someone who's got something to say, who's got an opinion, who who warrants connecting with, and that's usually someone who's been keeping up to date with stuff, as you might imagine.
0: Now, yeah, yeah, most certainly. So, so I I, I do like that three uh, R based on the fact that I've looked at lots of people who talk about niching and. Um, it's often very complex the way they d- describe how you find your niche, whereas that is a real simple one that, e- that pretty much anyone can do. And I think, as you said, even if you weren't looking to start a business, just doing that exercise, I think it's actually good to understand yeah, yeah. what is it that you enjoy, what is it you're good at, uh, and maybe even if you're just like using that to decide what you want to do with your next job, even if you don't want to become an expert for hire, it'd be useful to actually start to consolidate, actually. I've never thought get, about that I'm good at those things.
1: Yeah. And you can you can start to adjust the tiller on your life. If you start to see a pattern and you think, who do I want to become? You can start to adjust that. Who do I want to, who do I need to connect with? Who can help me with that? You know, if, if real estate is your passion, for example, to carry on with that example, who do I need to be connected with? What books do I need to be reading? How do, how do I start to build my own, my own results in that field? Uh, you can start to affect things and move in the direction of your passions. But those three R's, most of the people that I work with are at that sort of, they they are either 28 or they're 53, 48, yeah. the, the people that I tend to be sort of working with. And the, the people in the middle, age wise, career wise, are often, they're sort of. They're climbing that career ladder. They're in that, they're in that sort of peak peak space. So they're younger and, and they often don't go self-employed. You, you know, people tend not to go self-employed at 38, whereas they yeah, probably okay. do at 48, 58 and at 28. I was kind of, at, I was 30. And I meet a lot of people who are going self-employed at my age now, 51. So it's that sort of that. The, the, those those points and you, you, you might do it slightly different as a 28 year old 26 year old 28 year old than you would do as a 51 year old but um those three r's are a good are a good starting point
0: thank you very much and, and then so i suppose the next stage after that either so you've got your niche uh you kind of know how to become an expert because you talked about the research i mean you, you've either got the expertise or you try to great gain the expertise and you that compound uh, element where you continually try to learn yeah how that do you then- can
1: be done on the job as you say Hakim you yeah. can be doing that for the last couple of years of your you know your employed career if you have this vision you can be developing that
0: expertise excellent yeah so so, so, so how do you then find your audience your customers because that's obviously the biggest issue I've I, I, yeah I'm an expert I know what I want to do I've got my niche I now need someone to pay me for it
1: yeah and this is probably the single biggest sticking point I meet a lot of people who have got a really good product, but they don't have uh, that audience yet. And again, compound interest helps you build that audience. And so starting young is an advantage. That's no consolation if you're 53, thinking you're going self-employed. I wish I'd started 20 years ago. Um, When there's a couple of things, I mean, digitalization, actually building your audience through LinkedIn doing what you're doing with things like creating a podcast on your niche, interviewing people, present. It's really about creating and relating. It's about creating ideas, listening. Where do people that might want what I've got hang out? Where are they online in the real world? Can I attend those events online in the real world? Can I plug into those networks? Who do I know that knows them? You need to have a very, I mean, the actual sort of, the practical stuff is pretty simple, here, The practical stuff, you know, and and largely free, a simple free brochure website, you can have a YouTube channel, you can have a podcast, you can pretty much everything is Twitter, LinkedIn, free, you can, you can get paid iterations of all of these things, but they're free or nearly free to build up your brand, get a little bit of help on brand and style. Again, it's nearly free now with services like Fiverr and so on that can give you little logos and help you build build websites if that's not your if that's not your thing. Um, and then you're constantly thinking about and you're when you're meeting those people that you that might well be your customers is what is it that frustrates them? What keeps them awake at night? What are the, you know, what are the things, what would it take for them to, what do they hate doing themselves or their staff hate doing? What are the sticking points in their business? Have you got that intersection with what you do and what they're looking for? And you're slowly building that that process. That, again, is is not difficult, but demands if your expertise is not wired up that way, it demands that you're also a salesperson, business development person. Now, you and I, we came from that background, Hakeem, but lots of experts don't come from that sales background, and it can be a challenge. Um, And it's one of the reasons why, as part of my business, I was aware that in the 20 years that I've been self-employed, I built up a pretty solid network. Most of my work for the first 15 years was um, flip charts and felt-tip pens in head offices and hotels by motorway junctions. But I didn't really have a digital iteration of my work particularly. And it's one of the reasons why I built a, um, and it's not just me, there's a team of six of us who do this, uh, why I built a membership website to put my content on and then take our membership website to the farmer industry um, at the same time as going to the farmer industry going to my contacts in self-employed expert for hire and saying look I know that your biggest frustration is often getting the clients is finding the clients is finding the someone who might be interested in your work getting them to try your work. Well, I'm building a platform that's going to reach the industry because I've got a pretty good little black book of contacts. Um, would you like to profile some of your work on my platform? So we created the Life Science Access Academy, which is my sort of my secondary brand. So it's Ian Chamberlain for Hire, which is at ianchamblin.net. And then the Life Science Access Academy, lsaccessacademy.com, which is an online membership site for the industry. But it also provides a platform for people who are going self-employed, maybe in their 50s, with loads of experience, research and respect examples, but they don't have that network. Is 180 plus pharma companies in the UK, over 9,000 UK pharma med tech subscribers. We have an audience there for experts for hire. And if you've got a solution, my audience love it, and it can accelerate the launch of your Um, freelance expert for higher business. I'm not the only one in that space, but plugging into well-connected other networkers is a great way to extend your net, is to build your network fast um, when it comes to finding your audience. So prioritize connecting with people who are well-connected. Um, I say that to my pharma clients, you know, who is the most well, if you're selling diabetes medicine in Hampshire, who is the best connected diabetologist on the south coast of England, it's Professor Um, uh, connect with him because he knows everyone. Yeah, so, you know, that, and if you're an expert for hire, connect with people like me. We don't compete. We need, you know, sometimes we do, but largely it's a business of collaboration. Largely it's a business of collaboration. And that would be the yes.
0: waiter. <coughs> it's that. about finding those influences, isn't it? Those influences. People like you, it People like oh, well. you connect with <laughs> people like you. You know everyone. <laughs> I know a few uh, yeah. in the farm industry, but no, you're right because and and it's and it's something that you've been doing for years. That, uh, you know, the, if you look at these YouTube influencers and Instagram influencers, et cetera, that's pretty much what you've been doing, wh- whether it's been with business influencers or influencers within the pharmaceutical industry or influences within the medical field, yeah. like, doctors, yeah. nurses, yeah. when you were a salesperson, that, that, that is what we, what we do. Is, is and one of the things people- that,
1: that characterises good networkers is their generosity is the reason why somebody like you, Hakeem, has got all the followers you have and all the people that are connected to you is because you're generous, is you help people out with no obvious quid pro quo. You don't, you're don't. you not doing it for gain. You get a gain ultimately because you get loads of people have heard about you and, and recommend you and say that Hakeem's a great guy. Uh, But it's a spirit of generosity is probably, A, it's being worthy of connecting with, so having something to say, and a spirit of generosity are the most obvious traits of all the best networkers that I've met. So if you're starting a business and you're thinking, who do I need to connect with, look at the most connected people in your world and connect with them. They're open to connection. By definition, they're likely to be generous and help you as a new starter into that world. And we're we'll often, you know, and the, and the why, why they're good at connecting because they recommend you, they connect you, they network you, they connect you up with other people. So prioritize those people generously, appropriately, politely, of course, um, and you'll find that there's lots of people out there who are willing to help you.
0: Okay. Thank you. Right. And, and then, I mean, you talked about quite a few things. You talked about how you started flip charts then you moved into the digital age and membership platforms. What would your advice be to somebody who's starting out in terms of what's the best solution? What's the best product to sort of like uh, bring their expertise to the market?
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, I, it, it's it's rather domain specific. It depends yeah. on the, the the expertise that you are. Um, I've got lots of Zoom today. I'm not sure that's going to be on your video. It'll pop ups on my screen. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm... I'm not, sure, I'm not sure I want to be too descriptive in this, too, too directive in this, but you, you've broadly speaking got things where, you know, low cost but highly scalable solutions. That's often things like um, an e-book, workbooks, podcast, audio, MP3, um, sort of read, listen type stuff. You've then got more, more premium courses membership sites and courses, premium content that you can then, again, largely digital, maybe with some one-to-one iterations that where you'd provide some coaching, but people are maybe consuming some digital content as part of a program that also includes some half-hour coaching or some video webinars. You've got the classic stuff where I started, and when I started, we didn't have Zoom and Teams and all of those things, which was, you know, in-person events, which is hard to scale. You'll be then training other people to deliver your work, which I've never, I've done a little bit, but never done much of. Um, Largely, people are hiring me. So I charge a premium rate because there's only so many days a year that I'm available to do that. And I still do a lot of that. I do it by Zoom rather than in person, but I do a lot of that still. I do maybe 70 to 80 days a year where I'm predominantly delivering work. Um, And then you've got full mentorship programs where you might take a, you know, a management team on a journey for 12 months, which is a lot of you sitting in with them. And it's, it's almost akin to being sort of a a non-executive director for that Mm. business where you are, you are part of the management team because of your your, your emotional and physical presence over an extended period of time um, depends on what your expertise is and there'll be lots of people that watch your listen to your podcast Hakim coming at it from different spheres the good news is you don't have to pick just one yeah. you can have available for hire in person for personal one-to-one coaching or events or zoom events plus as you've done written a book, Plus, have maybe a membership site like I've done. There's yeah. a number of things you can do, so you can be earning whilst you're sleeping, but also have the high ticket price, um, high you know high cost but low scalability option to deliver to your premium clients. And what's interesting is, I think a lot of people think that if I've got the cheap stuff, the digital courses, it will cannibalise and reduce. The amount of live bookings I want those live bookings which might be you know eight ten thousand pound a day live bookings but I don't so if I give it all away in a you know a free ebook or a you know a five five pound a month subscription website it'll cannibalize more. it doesn't work like that if anything oh. those cheaper easy access products Drive customers to your premium mentorship programs, keynote speaking gigs, whatever it might be. You'll find that it actually increases increases dr- traffic to your premium products.
0: And then, in terms of the, the the courses that you do, you know, if you're doing like an online course, because I think lots of people are attracted to that now. People see people doing courses. How dif- difficult is it? Uh, because obviously, when when you and obviously you practice any any time you're doing it. But if you go live, you're live, you're interacting with an audience. When you're doing a course, are you getting a professional camera crew in, or you're doing it like this? So, how 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 would you start with that sort of thing?
1: Yeah, I mean, so instructor-led courses through Zoom and Teams over the last twelve months have been like we're doing here. We'll have a you know a team of eight or ten salespeople or MSLs, and I'm running it as if I was in the room with them via Microsoft Teams, and there's the option to do breakouts, there's the options to do whiteboards. It's not quite the same magic and alchemy as being in a room, but it is a much lower cost. Clearly, it mitigates infection risk. That's why we started in the first place. It's a great way to provide great in-person training. They can do little video role plays and upload them can watch and give feedback on role plays. There's all sorts of things you can do. People can be Zooming in from all over the place. There's that, we do it modular. So rather than be sort of eight hours a day in an office, we'll do it maybe four hours in a day or two hours a day today, two hours tomorrow, two hours the next day. We break it up so people can get back to their day job and be productive, putting those skills into practice with their own customers If we're doing a session in the morning, they can practice with their own customers in the afternoon. It can just work really well. And if you couple it with great other online resources in addition to your delivered webinar, so I have a often use a pre, it's not pre reading, it's a little 15 minute video they can watch. So there's a little video that people watch before coming on the training course with me. Then during the training course, as I mentioned, any materials that we create that might be whiteboards it might be um, video role plays we can then upload those to the website platform which they'll be members of yeah they can watch them again they can maybe watch a before and after video of what they were like at the start of the training compared to how good they are now and then after the instructor-led element of the webinar i always make sure that there's materials on my platform that help the companies coaches managers and mentors so not just the people who've been on the course but their managers and coaches there's loads of online resources for them there'll be an aid memoir all my slides etc will be on there so that it it transcends just the in the old days would have been you know me flying somewhere or taking the train somewhere for two days in a travel lodge and we're there we have a great two days but then i'm gone Yep. Digital means that there's, you know, 365 days, 24-7 support on, on the training. So overall, I think digital trumps the in-person event. But there's still a place for that sort of big rousing keynote sales conference in addition to that as well, of course.
0: Yes, definitely. So, so, so the, the, the question I know a lot of people will be thinking is, okay, that's all well and good, Ian. But how do you decide how much you charge? you know that that's that's a, an art in itself isn't it
1: it is and this is a bit of a this is a bit of a kind of a how long's a piece of string question of course and so my my advice would you know it's it it is a supply and demand it's a meritocracy um it's it's akin to hiring a band for the pharma company gala dinner do you go for you know band of legendary status you know, are you bringing the Rolling Stones in at about three million quid? Are you bringing the Foo Fighters in at half a million quid? Nineties throwback band, I don't know, Snow Patrol at 30 grand or the sales director's nephew's band at 500 quids and all the lager they can drink? Um, it depends to assert what does it what does hiring a band cost? What does hiring an expert for hire cost? What do they charge? Um, it, your niche will drive this. If you are a generalist presentation skills, health and safety trainer, your fee isn't going to be that much. If you are the world's expert on multi-billion dollar pharma mergers and acquisitions, you're going to be charging a fortune for your, for your services. So it's a little bit on the niche, the value of that niche. Think, I would suggest, think about, non-executive director type you know, type money. So for kind of FTSE 100 companies, they charge around, you know, it's around about 5,000 pound a day to be a, an NED at those sort of companies. Think barrister for hire. That's, if your clients are small businesses, being a non-exec director might be 800, 1200, 1600 a day. In the world of pharma, I partner with on my platform, I'm not gonna name any names, but I've got over a hundred independent trainers and consultants, not all of them active. Some of them are doing other things, but the ones that I'm frequently interacting with is about 30 of them frequently interacting with. There's quite a range of fees from somewhere between 12 to 18,000 a day for in-person work for some of them, big ticket trainers and experts, down to around about three thousand two and a half to three thousand pounds a day without a niche you'll struggle to clear three and a half thousand yeah. a day um i've got a little spreadsheet if people are interested any of your subscribers it's an excel spreadsheet dead easy to fill in i can send it to you hakim and if any of your um listeners are interested it's kind of you put all your book you kind of what would i get paid if i was employed to do this full-time how many days will I deliver it? How much do I need to spend on marketing? Blah, 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 blah. Puts all your costs in, works out your costs for you and gives you an idea about what you should be charging. That doesn't necessarily guarantee that the market is willing to pay that. Okay, yeah. so, you know, I don't know. flower arranging for butchers might be, you might be a fantastic expert in butchery and flower arranging and, you know, you might think that's worth £10,000 a day. There might not be many people who are willing to pay it. Um, <laughs> you know, but I've got a little spreadsheet to guide you. But if you think non-executive director or barrister, if I had to hire a barrister, if I had to hire an expert for hire, what would it be? It's usually
0: in that sort of ballpark. No, that's, re- that's really useful. And Because and, and, I know when I started, someone said to me, oh, well, if you charge too little, then people don't value it. Would you ascribe to that, or would that not be? Yeah, thing? I mean, I, I do and I don't. Is <laughs> that
1: um I don't think I, I'm my my general premise is make sure you charge enough so that you can then be generous and not be penny pinching. Yeah. So yeah. charge what is right for the work that you do that delivers real value for your clients, demonstrable, clear value, so people go. My gosh, you get really great value when you hire hacky Charge enough so that you can also be generous. So if somebody phones you up, they're not on the clock. i got a quick question. You can give people an extra, you know, an hour on the phone, a couple of hours on the phone. You can spend some time with one of their team. And you're not, you know, when you put your expenses in, you buy a, you buy a cup of coffee at King's Cross Station on the way to go and see them. You're not putting that on the invoice, right? So it's yeah. that be generous with everything else you do. But charge what you should be charging, would be my advice. And uh, There there might well be a little bit of that kind of, you know, he's too cheap, she's too cheap, they can't be any good, there might be that. um, Or or economists call a Giffin good, you know, people want a Rolex because it's expensive and exclusive. And depending on the niche that you're in, that might be the case. Our audience are typically not spending their own personal money; they're spending their company's money, and you know it's that idea of you know if we buy everybody Apple computers, they're expensive, but it kind of says something about who we are. Yeah, yeah, I, I buy that. They're not putting their hand in their own pocket, so they're spending some. That's a nice place situation to be. Spending some, <laughs> it, so they're going to get the best at any price. Um, and someone that's a bit, you know, we got we're like Apple; we do everything that Apple does, but we're half the price. But I've not heard of you. I'm going to go with Apple, so it's yeah. an interesting one to juggle with.
0: Okay, so I mean, we're coming to the end of our time, sadly, but uh, so just a couple of questions. Mm. I know you've got a hard stop. Um, so, if you were to go back to when you started, and, and I'm going to conflate two two questions there. I yeah, think, sure. So, what what would you tell your younger self that you shouldn't be doing? or that you should be doing and then I'm um, and the 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 question I'm going to bring in with is so therefore what are the common mistakes that you, that you've seen that can lead someone to fail
1: yeah i th- i think the i think the most common mistake is the lack of niche and that was me to i i was guilty of this to a little bit is that i my best selling solution and the thing that i knew i knew if you'd asked me what are you best at what's your niche i did know if you'd asked me 20 years ago i'd I'd have told you it's this it's it's working with medical salespeople, helping them to see more customers the right customers and keep the conversation going i was really clear on it but i spent in terms of time spent It was literally, I suppose, hacking. It was the 20% of my work that gave me 80% of my joy and 80% of my revenue. I still, though, didn't expand it because I still did selling skills, negotiation, all those other things that I certainly wasn't brilliant at. I was okay at. It used to pay the bill right now. But if I'd spent more time in those first five years getting really on that niche... And I would have accelerated um, my my develop my business much more rapidly. There were moments in those five years when things were quiet. You know, it wasn't the steady. It wasn't the steady. You know, ten percent a year, twelve percent a year incremental growth. And um, I, I have looked back over the course of the twenty years of self employment, it has been something between twelve and fifteen percent, depending on how you. I was in different, I lived in France for a while and currency fluctuations, 12 to 15% compounded growth over the 20 years, but it never went up in a smooth line. There were years when it dropped back. And if I look back on that, it was nearly always being distracted away from my core niche. So that would be the one thing if you're going to focus on kind of, we've labored that point perhaps today, <laughs> but it's, um, it would definitely be, you know, get good at that, find out more about it. Keep exploring it with your customers um, would be the uh, yeah probably would be charge a bit more as well early yeah. on I don't, that's not a problem for me now um, but um, yeah I would um, I would really give people that little bit of confidence to charge a bit more so that you've got a bit of a bit of a buffer and you can then be generous and then you're not panicking and that means then you're not saying yes to stuff that isn't in your niche, that doesn't, yeah, it pays the bill now because you're desperate because you didn't charge enough for the other stuff, is charge a bit more so that you can turn stuff down and then dedicate yourself to your niche. Okay.
0: Well, thank you very much, Ian. I I know know you're in order, so just just to sum up, um, you know, we've just been talking about how do you turn yourself and your skill set into a business that um, actually paid the bills. And and if you're as good as Ian, then hopefully you'll be able to do exactly what it is, four days a week, 10 to 12 uh, weeks of holiday a year. But what, what, what I took out of that, and which has been really important, is small and consistent uh, steps every year, making sure you understand what it is you want, what you actually want to do in terms of your niche. And then we did the three R's, which I thought was really important. And then, and then talking about how much you charge. And, and obviously, I, as I said, at the outset, I've worked with Ian, um, and I've known him as a friend for uh, what twenty odd years, and he had and and that generosity thing I think makes a difference. Because I've obviously hired him. Um, where it, yeah, in, you um, hired yeah,
1: you hired. Yeah, yeah. In previous
0: guises for my business, and I, and I know he's absolutely fantastic. But that all that came about because I met him at a networking meeting, and he was very generous, so asking loads of questions about access actually, which then confirmed that he was an expert and then I paid for his services. And even when we've not been paying for his services, we've been in contact and he's given me some great advice. So I think that's useful. Life Science Access Academy, people need to check that out. And then Ian's going to send me a spreadsheet in terms of how to charge as well. So if you want to understand that, please get in contact with me. So thank you very much, Ian. Really appreciate it and I'm sure we'll have a, have opportunities to have some more conversations like this. Yeah,
1: let's hope so. Let's do something else. Let's, uh, let's delve into another topic next time. Hakim is has been great. Thanks, Ian. Thanks for inviting me along. Have a great day.
0: And you.